For those that are new, my name is David, one of the pastors here at Remedy. And for those that know me, you'll notice that my voice is a little rough this morning. Um, so my, my prayer is that um, my voice is not a distraction because we have something very important that we're going to be looking at from God's word this morning. Um, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Jesus, we thank you uh, that you are Lord of heaven and earth, that you have created all things, that you sustain all things. And we pray, Father, that uh, you would, by your spirit, guide us as we look into your word. Uh, thank you, Jesus, that you have, have given us your word, and we pray that we will indeed obey your command that we will go into to, uh, to all nations to make disciples. Give us your heart for the nations, we pray. Amen. So there are pivotal events in history which have changed everything. Uh, these events, had they happened in any other way other than the way that they happened, uh, the world as we know it would have been very different. So, for example, think of the world, it, what it would be like if um, the Axis powers had won World War II. And the U.S. was uh, part of the Third Reich or part of the Empire of Japan. At home, I have books in which the authors study key battles of history. If any of these battles had turned out differently, the world as we know it would have been very different than the world we live in now. In Scripture, we see key historical events with consequences not just for this life, but which echo into eternity. The greatest of these, of course, is the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the pivotal event in history. Because of it, we have the great exchange. Jesus, the wrath that we deserve, through faith in Jesus, we have been reconciled to God. Other pivotal events include the fall of man in the garden and the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants which point us to Jesus. I believe our text today shows us another pivotal event in history. In our text, God is about to change the world forever. God uses the church at Antioch to send the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys, taking the gospel to the ends of the known world. No doubt, Paul was thinking about the church in Antioch when he wrote in Romans 10, 14, and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? How much importance did the Apostle Paul place on the sending church? I mean, he said, how are they to preach unless they are sent? 
A good sending church is vital for missionary endeavors. It's the first rung on the ladder, which leads to making disciples of all nations. So what was the church at Antioch like? What can we learn from the church that was used by God to send the Apostle Paul to the end of the earth? What made Antioch a church that was about to change the world? From our text, we'll see five characteristics of ascending church. We'll explore together what made the church of Antioch a model for us to follow. The beginning of the church at Antioch is chronicled for us in Acts chapter 11. The gospel is preached there among the Gentiles. Acts 11.21 says, A great number of the Gentiles turned to the Lord. The church in Jerusalem hears about it, and so they send Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas came and saw the grace of God and was glad. Then he fetches Saul from Tarsus. For a whole year, Saul and Barnabas met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So this is the textual context. Not as important as the textual textual context, say that fast, uh, but still useful in this case is some historical context. Antioch, not to be confused with Antioch Pisidia, which is in modern-day Turkey, was the third largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria. By the end of the first century, it had a population of 200,000 people. The people there were predominantly Greek-speaking Gentiles, but there was a large Jewish presence and, of course, a large Roman garrison. Tradition holds that Antioch was the first predominantly Gentile church. If we look at verse 1, we can see that their leaders included both Jews and Gentiles. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Sometimes we tend to skip over verses with meaning to the original hearers. There are no throwaway verses. Of the five predominant prophets and teachers at the Antioch church, Saul, Barnabas, and Simeon are all Hebrew names. A few verses down, if we look at Acts 13.9, we see Paul or Saul when he's already on his missionary journey. And once he's working predominantly among Gentiles, he transitions from his Hebrew name Saul to his Roman name Paul. Barnabas was a nickname, meaning son of encouragement. His birth name was Joseph. According to Acts 36, he was a Levite from Cyprus. Simeon's nickname was Niger, which is the Latin word for black. Most likely, he was of African descent. Lucius is a Roman name. He was from Cyrene in modern-day Libya. You'll remember another man from Cyrene, Simon of Cyrene was the man compelled by the Romans to carry the cross of Jesus to his crucifixion. Manian is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Manaham. He was a foster brother of Herod Antipas, raised in the royal court. 
Herod Antipas, called Herod the Tetrarch, ruled in Galilee during Jesus' earthly ministry, and he's mentioned frequently in the Gospels. In Luke 8.3, we're told of an earlier Christian influence in Herod's court. Joanna, the wife of Herod's household manager, was among the women who provided materially for Jesus' ministry out of her own means. So we're going to come back to verse 1 in a minute, but for now keep in mind that Saul and Barnabas were two of the five primary leaders in the church at Antioch. Verse 2 starts out, while they were worshiping the Lord. Here we see the first characteristic of ascending church. A church that is going to reach the world is a worshiping church. So who are the they in verse 2? Most Bible commentators believe it refers to the whole church, not just the five leaders. The Greek word that's translated worship here is leitergeo. It means to, to serve or to do a service. It's where we get the word liturgy. We also see the word they down in verse 3. Saul and Barnabas are commissioned, which would have been something that was done by the whole church. And as we'll see, it was the whole church that Saul and Barnabas reported back to when they returned from their first missionary journey. What was the church doing? They were gathered. They were fasting, and prayer is implied, and they were worshiping. A few weeks ago, we talked about how worship is the foundation of our going. We go so that others might also worship God. We cannot invite the nations into something that we are not experiencing ourselves. Here we see that God acts in worship to spread worship. Specifically, what does it mean when it says that they were worshiping? Well, Scripture tells us what to do when we're gathered. We're to sing testimonies, we're to read and preach the word. We're to pray, have testimonies, celebrate the Lord's Supper, baptize into the church, and give. Scripture commands us to do all of these things when we're gathered. All of these things are worship. Sometimes in our culture, worship is used in a very narrow sense to mean music. Some churches refer to their song leaders and band leaders as worship leaders. At Remedy, we've tried to not use that language because it confuses people. It implies that the elder preaching that Sunday is not a worship leader, that the sermon and participating in the Lord's Supper is something other than worship. It sends the message that only when we are singing are we worshiping. Often at Remedy, you'll hear someone say, let us continue to worship the Lord by singing together. Or someone will explain that part of our worship together is giving. Words matter. We want to rightly handle the word of truth. So what was the church teaching and praying and any of the other things the scripture tells us to do when we're gathered? They were a worshiping church. That's the first characteristic. Second, ascending church is a discerning church. We see that in the rest of verse 2. 
The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. When the Holy Spirit speaks, the Antioch church listens. They discern what the Holy Spirit is telling them. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In our text, it's been about 25 years since that post-resurrection Pentecost in which God sent his Holy Spirit to the church. The gospel witness has gone from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and it's gone a little bit further to Syria. Now it's about to go to the end of the earth. Jesus commands us to go and make disciples of all nations. It's hard to imagine how a church might read this command and not commit itself to taking the gospel to the nations. To be um, faithful to the Great Commission, we must be a church that takes the gospel both across the street and across the world. Why was the church at Antioch able to discern what the Holy Spirit was saying? I believe there are three reasons for this. First, they're a doctrinally sound church. Second, they're spirit-led church. And third, they're a listening church. So first, they're doctrinally sound. In Acts 11.26, we're told that for a whole year, Saul and Barnabas met with the church and taught a great many people. Can you be imagined being, being taught by Saul and Barnabas for a year? So Antioch had a strong teaching ministry. They had a strong foundation in the truth of God. They had a good doctrinal basis. Second, they were a spirit-led church. Acts 11.24 says Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Likewise, Acts 13.9 says that Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit. The leaders were spirit-filled. I think we can conclude that the church was under the control of the Holy Spirit. It was a spirit-led church. Third, it was a listening church. Our text finds the church worshiping. They were fasting, which shows the intensity of their prayers. They were in a position to hear what God was saying because they were seeking God. What were they seeking God about? We're not told specifically in the text, but we can gather something of the nature of their petition from the answer that God gave them. I believe that the church was burdened for the cities that some of them had come from, praying for Cyprus, and Lucius praying for the people of Cyrene in North Africa. They were praying that the Lord would send workers into the harvest. They were praying intentionally for the lost. They were fasting. They were worshiping. And God answers their petition, and they discerned what the Holy Spirit said to them. This brings us to the third characteristic of a church that is going to reach the world. Ascending church is a praying church. Please look with me at the first part of verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, 
they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Saul and Barnabas were sent out with prayer and fasting. Now, I have no doubt that the church continued to pray for Saul and Barnabas after they left. That's our pattern to follow as well. The elders pray for our missionaries as we do for every member by name. Congregationally, we pray for our missionaries every month during our call to worship. A number of you pray for our missionaries on a daily basis. In addition, we're spooling up a missions committee. As we consciously and deliberately work to select, train, and send workers into the harvest field, we need to scale up our care for missionaries. The more missionaries we send, the more intentional we must be. The missions committee will be a small group of members who will stand with our missionaries through persistent prayer. They will lovingly hold them accountable as we partner with them financially. They will communicate frequently with our missionaries, helping them stay connected to the church body. They will pass on prayer requests to the congregation so that we can all pray specifically for them. They will encourage the missionaries in the work that God has called them to do. So overall, they will care for our missionaries. Growing up as an MK, a missionary kid, I can tell you firsthand the importance of missionary care. I saw missionaries leave the field discouraged. They were forgotten by their sending church. Regular, intentional communication with your sending church is so encouraging. Knowing that people are praying for you is a lifeline. Some of you have heard the story of William Carey, known as the father of modern missions. Mr. Carey was a poor cobbler, meaning that he mended shoes for a living. But the Great Commission got a hold of him. It was something that he couldn't shake. He organized the Baptist Missionary Society in 1792, and at its inaugural meeting, he preached a sermon. And he had the call in the sermon, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. As they were discussing the unreached that were around the world, the question was asked, who will go to India? I will go, responded William Carey, but remember, you must hold the rope. As a sending church, we must hold the rope to those that we send to the field. Above all, holding the rope means that we pray for them. Ascending is an obedient church. The church at Antioch discerned what God was telling them, and they obeyed. The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Obedience wasn't easy. They didn't send those they could spare. They sent their best. Can you imagine how this must have felt? Oh, anyone but Saul and Barnabas, Lord. We need them to teach us. They're two of our five primary leaders. Verse 3 says, they laid their hands on them. The laying on of hands is a practice that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 8, the children of Israel laid their hands on the Levites for the work that they were called to do. 
The laying on of hands is done to separate, to set aside a person for the work. We do that at Remedy when we ordain elders and deacons. So when the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, barn, they laid their hands on them. In verse 3, we're told that they were sent out by the church. Then in verse 4, it says they were sent out by the, the Holy Spirit. So which is it? Well, the answer is both. The church sent them out under the direction of the Holy Spirit. The important principle here is that the church sends whom the Holy Spirit calls. As the Holy Spirit calls people at remedy for missions, we want to discern that and send them out. Whom might the Holy Spirit call? You know, it's, it's not just pastors and evangelists. My dad was an accountant when he was called to the mission field. I've encountered missionaries who were called as construction workers, teachers, mechanics, engineers, and parents with small children. I took a quick look at the IMB, International Mission Board, website. Right now, they're looking for people in travel and meeting services, business, finance, security, IT, HR, consulting, law, marketing, and people with medical training. If your skill set wasn't mentioned, check the website again next week, because it probably will be. Saul and Barnabas were not called by the Holy Spirit only to be sent off on their own. They were sent by the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit was with them every step of the way. What a tremendous encouragement that is for all of us who are commanded to go, which is, which is all of us. Whether it's across the street or across the world, when you're called by the Holy Spirit, he sends you. He goes with you. He strengthens you for the work. He works in the hearts of the hearers. He does the work that only God can do. When missionaries are sent out, they're not leaving the church. Rather, they're redeployed. Paul and Barnabas are still part of the church at Antioch. At the end of their journey, they report back to the whole church. We see this in Acts 14, 26, and 27. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Saul and Barnabas were still a part of their sending church, and they were accountable to their sending church. As members of Remedy, we understand accountability. We have a membership covenant that says we will regularly gather with the church and be involved in the life of the church. But what if someone is living in another country? How can you regularly gather with Remedy Church? For those instances, we have a slightly different covenant for members on mission. It addresses the unique circumstances of those who are unable to fulfill the regular membership covenant. But they're still members 
of Remedy Church. They're still accountable to us, and we are still accountable to them. Ascending church is an obedient church. The final characteristic we see in our passage is that ascending church is a to the word of God to the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. The church at Antioch had been proclaiming the word of God locally, and Saul and Barnabas participated in that. Now the church is led by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel well beyond the borders of Syria. Andy Pittman recently told me that getting on an airplane doesn't make you an evangelist. In other words, if you're not sharing the gospel now, what makes you think that you will suddenly start doing that when you go overseas as a missionary? When they arrived, they proclaimed. They proclaimed the word of God on Cyprus, just as they had been doing in Antioch. Saul and Barnabas go to the island of Cyprus and head to Salamis. So why Salamis? Well, according to Acts 4.36, Barnabas was born on Cyprus. According to church tradition, his hometown on Cyprus was Salamis. So the first place the missionaries go is to Barnabas' hometown. They also start in the synagogue of the Jews before going to the Gentiles. Many times, proclaiming the gospel begins with those closest to you. And John, who is also called Mark, assists them. Later in the journey, John Mark gives up and goes home. But that's thankfully, not the end of his story. Barnabas later takes him on another missionary journey, and John Mark goes on to pen the gospel of Mark through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they proclaimed the word of God. This brings us full circle. As we saw at the beginning from Romans 10, verses 14 and 15, for people to believe they must hear the word, To hear the word, they need someone to preach. For someone to preach, they need to be sent. The church at Antioch sends. Saul and Barnabas preach, and the world is changed forever. At Remedy, one of the ways we seek to be a proclaiming church is by being a sending church. We have missionaries that we have sent from our midst, We are consciously and deliberately seeking to select, train, and send more workers into the harvest field. Last month, I mentioned that we have taken our elder candidate training and split it into different pathways. The first is for any member that's interested in a pocket seminary education. It recognizes that everyone that's a believer can benefit from systematic theology biblical hermeneutics, and ecclesiology. The second pathway is the original pathway for those that are aspiring to be elders. But the third pathway is a missionary-focused pathway for future missionaries. One couple is already in that program, and another has expressed interest in, in it. So if you're interested in any of those three pathways, please talk to an elder. We began this morning by talking about pivotal events in history. 
At this pivotal event, God was about to send the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. The gospel was about to explode throughout the known world. Here, Scripture gives us a blueprint, a pattern, a model for us to follow. Integral to the Apostle Paul's ministry was the church at Antioch. The role they played there wasn't by accident. They were a worshiping, discerning, praying, obedient, and proclaiming church. They were a church that held the rope. As we consciously and deliberately work to select, train, and send workers into the harvest field, may we, by God's grace, continue to be ascending church. Let's pray together. Temple of the church at Antioch in your word. I pray, Father, that we can, can be obedient as they were to the Great Commission by being a great sending church. Thank you for the pattern they have left. Thank you for the model that we have. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that we might also have the same heart for the nations that you have. Father, if there are those that uh, are being called to, uh, to the mission field, we, we pray for those that you would um, uh, make it very clear to them and to us um, what you're, you're telling them to do. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to be part of your great work. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.